Score, the podcast, is presented by Spitfire Audio. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Kenny Holmes and Robert Kraft here for another week of Score, the podcast. Robert, how you feeling? I'm feeling great. Summer is here. It's heating up. And Score, the podcast, is heating up. We are really excited about how our numbers are growing that means you the listener yeah you must be telling your friends yeah and please continue to do so um make sure to follow us on twitter at score the podcast we're always posting little clips of uh we do little video clips to kind of show you what the scene looks like set the scene for you in your mind in fact my mom messaged me and she's like can you send me a picture before i listen to the episode so i know what the people are wearing and what they look like and (laughs) it makes me visualize it better so um, yeah, we're very excited about today's guest uh, as well, Benjamin Wallfish. He is on a tear right now. He sure is. He had, he's, yeah. just, he's just a huge talent. Huge talent. And just this past year, he had two movies come out within six days of each other, uh, Hellboy and Shazam. And the, the scores for both of those were polar opposites, but they were incredible. Um, and he also has it too coming out this fall. Um, so he's he's been super busy, and he's moving into a new studio. So we're going to have him join us as opposed to going in to his studio. I want to find out. Did he write Hellboy from like nine a.m. to five thirty, <laughs> right. then break for an hour to have a little dinner, and then cleanse the palate? Right, Shazam seven to midnight every single day. I want to figure out how he that did that. That just sounds terrifying. Terrifying. But- he did it with grace, and uh, the sounds were amazing. Um, so we're going to get to Ben in just a bit. Uh, I wanted to bring up this whole thing about Swamp Thing. The show came out, and it's on DC's kind of paid platform, which I wasn't even really that familiar with. But Apparently no one was. Everyone's doing their own a la carte you know, platform these days. And uh, Swamp Thing came out with one episode, and the Rotten Tomatoes score was great. And people were apparently liking it, and they come out and say it's canceled. And it just, it was, I think the the internet response was outrage, like everything else. But there was a, a hashtag trending, save swamp thing, and people were already, you know, going to support it. And this happened with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and NBC ended up picking it up. So it it's worked before, but... Why would a? I mean, do you have any experience in in this happening where a show comes out with one episode and gets canceled, and it seems a little premature? I first of all, of course, have no idea what the internal workings are of DC and the Swamp Thing production. My only guess is, even though the Rotten Tomatoes reviews were good, either the viewership they clocked was way down from what they anticipated, or Needless to say, sometimes the expense of making one particular show, you start to pencil it out and you see that you're going to just lose money with that level of interest that they were clocking. And they said it's better to get well, out. If you, if you have a platform like yeah. this, though, where it's paid, I mean, you got to expect that the numbers are going to be low because you're you're introducing a whole new platform that people like. Like I said, I'm pretty aware of what's out there as far as platforms and i wasn't even really that familiar with the dc streaming service so 
Didn't DC have any response like, here's why we canceled it? Not that I'm aware of. No. And we we reached out to Brian Tyler and he hasn't he hasn't responded yet, but he did the music for it and it'd be interesting to see um, you know, what he thinks of the response on on social media cuz you know, the fans get behind stuff and if they make uh, enough noise, someone may Stay rescue tuned. this thing. Um, so More will be revealed. It would be cool. It would be a cool uh, little superhero they moment. They might for make the show. it kind of a New Orleans show called Swamp Thang. You never know. <laughs> Could go a whole different direction. I think that's it. Ooh, that was a good one. Um, so we'll keep an eye on the Swamp Thing situation. I also thought it was interesting that uh, the new Batman, um, the producer of Batman, what what's the producer? Anyway, he tweeted out. The the announcement of uh, Twilight dude, JJ being Batman. No, the the actor Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. We'll get it together this morning. Stick with us. We're drinking coffee. Carol's re- researching it here. You can speak. Uh, Matt, Reeves. <laughs> Matt Reeves. Oh, Matt Reeves. So Matt Reeves tweeted out that the announcement of Robert Pattinson yes. was like the official tweet. Yep. And um, it was liked by Michael Giacchino. <laughs> Is he going to work on the music, you think? I mean, you're kind of putting it out there. Giacchino, is Giacchino going to do I mean, they work together on Planet of the Apes, I think, and some other things. Nice. So, um, very interesting. Can't go kinda wrong with sub, Michael Giacchino. Sub-tweeting a little yeah. bit. Sub-tweets. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll we'll keep an eye keep on us posted the news and, for And that. listeners, if you get any data, Swamp Thing, Batman composers, send us the information. We will give you exactly no credit and take it all for ourselves. <laughs> um, Robert, you're getting excited about the Hollywood Bowl season. Always excited to see the Hollywood Bowls line up for movie music because they've really been for uh, this kind of presentation of live to picture. The Hollywood Bowl has been a leader in, I think, in the world, certainly in the United States, of doing these incredible shows where they show a movie and the orchestra is on stage playing the live picture in time the way it was intended to be. So they have some big ones coming up. They have on June 29th, the L.A. Phil will be playing Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Actually, that's the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra on June 29th. And then the L.A. Phil is doing Jurassic Park. Who among us can sing the Jurassic Park theme? Carol's hating the key I'm in right okay. there. Okay. Uh, Thank uh, you very much. It was interesting. It was kind of the spooky Jurassic Park theme. It was like the one from... Oh, there she goes. It was kind of like I was doing the the scary Jurassic World one where it was like a little terrifying on the trailer. That was Jurassic World. Well, they're going to do Jurassic Park in concert August 16th with David Newman conducting. That's exciting for us because he's coming up as a guest. Can I give that away? David Newman on Score of the Podcast. Who's also doing West Side Story yeah. with Spielberg. One of my favorite composers. A lot the, to talk about. I, I want to say this. if I, And, you know, we talk about the Hollywood Bowl sometimes on the show. And if you don't live in Hollywood, you're probably like, "That's I wish I could go. Or I don't even know what that is. The Hollywood Bowl is, is a legendary venue. And they, are, they really have made film music concerts they keep they keep them alive and they're starting to spread around the country now and and the world and you see it now but you know John Williams has been doing these summer shows here for how long I don't know 20 30 years and this summer three nights 
of Maestro Williams, August 30, 31, and September 1st. You should book your trip and come see John Williams do this show because, you know, as we all know, like, he's he's retiring. We don't know how much longer he's going to do this or be able to do this, and you don't... I mean, I've been to the show a few times now, and it's really something special, and it's for, you know... People from all different eras, they, they, they go through all these different movies, and it's it's really incredible to see him do this in front of a, a large audience. So. 18,000 people outside on a beautiful Los Angeles evening, and you know that feeling when you go to a band and they play hit after hit record, and you go, oh, I love this, oh, I love yeah. this. John Williams, every single theme that he plays, you go, oh, that's right. And the cool thing is you can bring your own food and drinks. You can pack a basket and bring your wine and cheese or beers getting, or whatever. Are we getting compensated by the Probably Hollywood not. Bowl? We should get some couple free tickets because we're here selling the show, but it's worth selling. They Just really come support see John Williams do the show. John Williams do the show um, as soon as possible because we never know how much longer these shows are going to go on and. And it's it's happening this summer, so do it. Wasn't there some news this week about the Emmys and their recognition of yes. documentaries? Yes, they're going to now be recognizing original documentary scores, which That's they haven't fantastic. been doing before. And uh, was it? Uh, it's Miriam Cutler really deserves the credit. She's a great composer. She's an, a composer that deserves credit as a composer. She hasn't gotten it, but here she. Deserves a lot of credit as an advocate for yeah. recognizing the fact that original music in documentaries is significant and has not been acknowledged. And she's finally gotten the Emmys to acknowledge it and to create an award for best original score for a documentary. And she made a good case. Um, you know, they're they're looking at this as documentaries are independent. Oftentimes the composers are people you haven't heard of before which opens up the door for, you know, gender and diversity and all of these problems that Hollywood has and is trying to solve these problems. And this opens up that door. You know, you're going to recognize a composer that this may be their first work or, you know, first couple of works. And um, they're they're doing a documentary and, and, you know, if they're standing up there getting an Emmy for it, that may be the next step to them getting a, another job. A big gig. The big wigs of the industry are watching these award shows and hearing these names. And sometimes that recognition, the talent is all out there. But sometimes you just need your, your name to be put on a sign in front of someone's face. And then they, they get elevated. Miriam deserves uh, awards, I guess. And certainly the credit she's for... Two big documentaries she scored recently, RBG, the notorious RBG, mm -hmm. which is the, about our Supreme Court justice, and The Hunting Ground. Um, but Miriam's a wonderful composer, huge talent, and now an advocate, politically yep. motivated. Thank you, Miriam. A couple of movies coming out this weekend. Um, kind of a shocker at the box office that no one expected. Life of Pets, Secret Life of Pets, knocked out. Dark, Dark Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah, and both of them actually underperformed. They both were disappointments to their respective studios. Life of Pets did half of what the original Life of Pets did. And Dark Phoenix was the weakest opening of any X-Men movie. Mm -hmm. So there is a feeling this morning that sequelitis is a disease that needs a cure in Hollywood. And it's a little sad that, you know, this is one of those examples where Hans Zimmer's music for Dark Phoenix is awesome, but the movie's just going to disappear. Hope it doesn't hurt his career.
Yeah, I think he'll be okay. Okay. Uh, Men in Black International coming out this weekend. MIB. Danny Elfman back again, and uh, he's working with Chris Bacon. Chris Bacon, who I've known. He's worked with a number of different composers. This will be a big step for Chris. It's directed by F. Gary Gray, who did Straight Outta Compton. Oh, yeah. So it'll be a, a rockin' movie, should be. Shaft, which but I didn't even know they were doing another Shaft. They didn't either. And it's just called Shaft again. There's not even like Shaft 2 back shafting around or something. <laughs> the Shaft returns. Return uh, of the Shaft. Scored um, by my friend Chris Leonard. Yeah, gonna, Chris Leonard. Going to see that. Chris is just awesome composer. Um, so this should be fun. Also, a big doc coming up this weekend, the Rolling Thunder Review a Bob Dylan story. You know, in 1975, there was a huge tour that Martin Scorsese captured on film with Dylan and all kinds of great uh, rock stars, not unlike The Last Waltz, which he did with the band. And this will be so interesting to see. It's just exciting for fans of music and fans of that era and also fans of Scorsese because he's so good with music. It's cool to see these big directors doing these music documentaries too. You know, Ron Howard's been doing it and Scorsese. It's kind of like they they have these big studio films, but then they have a passion project that they probably, it's probably not worth it to them to do it other than for the creative outlet. You oh, know? God bless them. And uh, in fact, God bless passion projects. I think those are... Sometimes mm-hmm. the, the genesis of some of the greatest work is when people do things not for the money, but because they love it. And and I think we're going to learn... This podcast, for example. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say... And of course we're doing... I mean, they, they show up with... The Brinks truck shows up at our door every morning with just the incredible <laughs> amount of cards and letters from our fans. And- Thank you. Oops, that, that must be him. <laughs> Delivery. That's not the doorbell. That's, um, <laughs> it's the bank. Well, we're going to hear a lot about uh, working on big projects coming up in just a moment. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're joined by Grammy and Golden Globe nominated composer Benjamin Wallfish. Mm-hmm. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, SCORE fans, it's Kenny. Now that Season 2 is going strong, you can look good while you're listening. We just released the official SCORE the Podcast t-shirt. There's multiple colors and sizes for men, women, and children. And they're super soft. I just got a few myself. They fit really nice, and they feel great, and they look cool. Uh, so go to score-movie.com store. Check those out, and you can also get a copy of SCORE, a film music documentary on Blu-ray, and our uh, interview bonus disc that has the extended interviews from the film. So plenty to check out, score-movie.com slash store, and get your shirt today. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. What about strange lands and an escape from the everyday? It's brilliant, George. Before anyone knew them by name. Who's a good boy, Indiana? 400 grand? Let me explain it. George, that's our money. Blockbuster. Following the spectacular failures and the unexpected triumphs. I told you, George. I told you. A six part immersive audio series. Blockbuster. Experience the entire six part series ad free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello, this is Stephen Price. You're listening to Score the Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. We are so happy for our guest uh, who's joining us today, Benjamin Wallfish, Golden Globe and Grammy-nominated composer. Ben, we've been trying to make this happen. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And he's uh, Ben's here. We're at uh, Craft Box Studios today because you are in the process of building a monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's quite an undertaking, yeah. I've... Uh, Decided to build a, build a little studio in Santa Monica, and uh, yeah, when you start something like that, you never quite know what you're taking on. So, um, hopefully, we'll get that done this year. Did you normally work out of your home studio, or what? What? Uh, how did this all come about? I've been uh, very kindly hands and Steve Kofsky over at Remote Control um, invited me to rent a room from them for for a number of years. So I've been there since uh, I guess 2013 now, actually. Mm. Uh, fantastic spot to be. You know, a lot of friends there. It's an incredible sort of creative hub. Um, so yeah, I've been based there for a while, and um, you know I'm going to be still keeping a couple of rooms there, but also yeah, just expanding a little bit further east onto 20th Street. And what are you going to call your studio? It's going to call the Scoring Lab. The Ooh, scoring well, lab, like <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of two businesses in one. There's a business called the Mix Lab, which is a Dolby Atmos uh, mix room, mm. which has turned into the headache. <laughs> it's exciting. We just got Dolby to certify it. It took took her a few months, Amazing. but um, it's uh, it's exciting. It's got 22 speakers, and uh, yeah, it, we're, we're going to town. It's going to be a lot of fun. I wonder if you will be so busy all the time that these rooms will be occupied and no one else will get into them. Uh, who knows? But no, the, the idea is that it, it, it's primarily for other people to come in and use not just, uh, you know, composers, but also, you know, sound mixers and um, pre-mixers. It's because of the certification you can, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities. Well, and there's not a lot of uh, Dolby Atmos is kind of a newer Thing for studios right? right so that you're going to be the cool studio on the block it, it's an incredibly interesting format i mean we did an experiment just now with shazam uh recording with you know overhead microphones which are actually they weren't directly over the orchestra but they were up in the gods at their studios and just to see what happens when you you we sort of did a fake atmos mix because we weren't actually delivering a full atmos deliverable but it was fascinating the perspective it gives you when you when you can just channel those very high gallery mics Above the, the above the audience, yeah. the, the, sort of, it, the perception of depth was fascinating. How would you describe Dolby Atmos to somebody who doesn't know what we're talking about? Well, I hate to pretend I'm an expert because I'm not. I'm still learning. But from what I understand, um, I've been really trying to educate myself. It's it's a kind of natural evolution of the idea of surround sound, which obviously started with a very basic thing of having three speakers at the front and one surround and then there were two which is five one and then seven one where you have mid speakers hmm. and what Dolby Atmos does is create this it's basically uh, a nine one six I don't actually know what the numbers I'll are there's, there's a lot of speakers it's it's <laughs> it's basically you have nine and this is by by the way home theatrical because the theatrical is a whole other thing you have on you know on this plane nine speakers and then you have six channels above you and then you have a sub but there's also these it might even be seven i don't know the number but then the whole idea is that that can scale to any size you could have a hundred speakers mm. and uh, you have this thing called <clears throat> objects 
uh, and and a bed. And the bed is kind of like the basic thing, but then you have objects which you can move. And when you export, it creates a sort of set of metadata so that you can upscale or downscale depending on the size of the space. So instead of having to second guess whether a theatre will have the exact speakers you have, you actually can kind of, you know, it will automatically adapt. So even mm-hmm. in a very small theatre, you'll have a you know, a very good experience, you know, versus, you know, the Chinese theater or something. That makes me wonder, because when you're <coughs> writing a score, you've got to write a score for like 5,000 different settings of speakers. So how much does Atmos play into if someone's listening to it in stereo versus 100 speakers? You, uh, the core of the score still has to make sense to everyone watching it, no matter what type of speakers they're listening to. I, I think the key thing is to to leave that to the people who really know what they're doing. <laughs> that's the that's the that's the dubbing engineer. Yeah, Excellent the, the answer. The re-recording makes set. I mean, for Blade Runner, for example, um, it, it was a case of delivering a lot of stems uh, in five one, and then you know we it was just this incredible process where that was effectively upmixed. Um, <clears throat> into something that was just like a, a sonic experience, um, but that—that that is the artistry of those of those guys who do that every day. So they pick and choose and stems for those that don't know. Those that's every little piece of the score broken down into each little section. So mm-hmm. you can put one sound of the trombones in one speaker and and you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on the score because uh, something like Shazam, it was all about kind of capturing this old-fashioned sound uh which i grew up with and was in love with still am uh where you have the whole orchestra playing together at the same time and kind of balancing within you know a group um and in that case you know you're gonna have uh there you go <laughs> wonderful <laughs> he's smiling great i want you to finish your answer but even a cue like that i wonder do you write on paper that's a really interesting question um so i i do tend to sketch it's actually on ipad now but yes there there's a process tell me about the ipad sketching is it actually (laughs) it's it's manuscript paper paper yeah yeah Yeah, it's just it's it's and with an ipad pen with an ipad pen yeah Yeah. i just i found myself just the book was kept falling on my keyboard and recording random MIDI notes. So yes, an iPad was, was helpful, but no, it's funny because sometimes you just have an idea completely randomly. And by the time you've selected the MIDI track and gone in to record, it might not quite be there. Mm. So sometimes just scribbling it down, but just, even if it's just like a couple of chords, um, but something about that, I mean, particularly with Shazam, it was this thing of, you know, how can we get past the, the sometimes agony of mocking up a cue, especially when it's that dense an orchestration? Because you can spend easily a day on 10 seconds of mock-up when it's that dense. And, and what I tried to do was completely bypass that and write the entire score in kind of the equivalent of a short score in, in MIDI, but only using piano tracks. So effectively I had 12 piano tracks um and in my head the top one was the woodwind the next one was going to be the low woodwind and brass and strings and then you know i'd I'd expand and effectively all i had them with with, with the notes and it was this great thing where you can actually build momentum and build a sense of okay i might be getting somewhere because you know it's half the time you're second guessing is this completely horrible (laughs) well (laughs) yeah you're lucky half the time and then the, the other half is like 
probably your throw, third guess throwing that halfway. <laughs> so, so but it's, did uh, you play that built-up piano score for the director and have him understand what was going on? I didn't on this occasion because there was a good amount. There was a good amount of time um, to to kind of go through that process and then do a MIDI orchestration. Um, but I, but yeah, I mean, I probably if we had less time, I, I might well have done that. Um, and it was it was great just because it, it kind of opened up this. It was a new way of working for me, and it really exciting to just you know that the discipline of you you only have the notes was um, it was terrifying at first, but then of course it was you know liberating because you didn't have to worry about programming a you know a timpani roll and the, all, all those things I that got back into it. You are uniquely qualified. I mean, you mentioned two scores already, <laughs> and they they almost could be by two different composers: Blade Runner and Shazam. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's remarkable about the work you've done in it is score to score. There is a sense of this is appropriate for the movie. It's not this is a Benjamin Walfish score applied to another story. And I think that just talent-wise is exceptional, but it makes me wonder when you approach, for example, a kind of highly electronic score. Mm. Um, is it the same approach? Is it all done in the box? Is it something that you feel, I got this, or, shoot, I'm really stronger in one arena? Because a lot of composers say, there's my zone, and then there's not my zone. I don't hear that in your work. I hear, I'm going to score this movie. And by the way, Shazam turns out to be this magnificent, I mean, it's... It's a throwback to an orchestral score that you don't hear very often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, look, it, it, it's um, Blade Runner. It was so much of it was was Hans Zimmer's involvement in terms of how to approach something as monumental as you know following up this iconic work of art, Vangelis. And I feel so privileged to have been invited into the room by Hans into this room with Denis Villeneuve, Joe Walker. And and him and, and him and just kind of going into that question with a completely open mind and it was funny because sometimes I mean I find that for me the scores that I most I feel most connected to are the ones that really harken back to my own childhood loves and for Shazam it was very much my continued obsession with John Williams but that really started when I was maybe six <laughs> um, going to CET. But I was hugely, hugely excited by synthesizer music growing up in the 80s and 90s of Van Gogh's and Jean-Michel Jarre and Maroder and those guys and also the burgeoning rave scene in London, you know, the Prodigy, all these like really early. I, I, I loved this music and I used to you know, attempt to do it as a kid, but it was, it was something I, I found myself kind of veering away from when I started you know, really getting more into classical music and training in that world. But I don't know. I mean, I have a, a very sort of... I mean, my relationship with Hans is so long-standing, and we're, we're you know we're great friends now. And I think you know when you get to know someone really well. Uh, when he called me, I was thinking, well, why me? You know, I'm not really a synth guy at all. But what was really exciting is that through that collaboration I had with him on Blade Runner and the trust he had in me, and the fact that we were kind of two band members, sort of bouncing off each other the whole time, um, it sort of gave me the confidence to just you know attack that score in the same way as I'd attack any any score. It just happened to be in a sound world which. I hadn't done before, but it was, you know, it, in the end, it just, as Hans always says, it's all about story and all about finding ways to progress a character's journey through, you know, through motif and through a sense of, um, you know, 
the, the the emotional subtext that a score can bring and uh so yeah it's i mean it's a very <laughs> convoluted answer but it's in the case of that score uh, and, and actually a lot of it is is about collaboration you know if it's not with uh you know a co-write like with with Blade Runner uh, it's it's the collaboration with your filmmakers and being mm. and actively being in a mindset where you are inspired by whatever it is they have to say or or sometimes not say or just imply you know reading between the lines of a of a note or a, or a spotting brief um, or even just sort of really looking aside the pace of a cut or the choices they've made with set design um, costume all these things and you just kind of try and see what what's underneath what they're trying to achieve on the surface and because that's kind of where music lives is in the subtext you're describing what makes a great composer which is being sensitive to the nuances that a, a director a story a character brings which is hans taught me i used to think that it, composing was half politics <laughs> half music he said it's a third a third a third politics music and narrative you have to be the storyteller. That, that's very true. So yeah. I learned that. And what you're describing, what's interesting is that when you said on Blade Runner, if you weren't familiar with synths mm. as a tool, did you have programmers that you could say, you know, I want kind of a darker, yeah, cause rounder. That score, there's some really raw mm. modulation, like pushing the speakers where it sounds like your speakers are going to rip out of the box right, right. as opposed to... Shazam, which is so orchestral and yeah. beautiful, like completely polar opposites. But well, I, I, it was a bit like being handed the keys to the Lamborghini, basically with uh, with with Blade Runner, because Hans basically gave me his his synth library in Zebra, and I have a you know, it's my it's not a guilty pleasure, and it's I don't sort of try and hide it, but you know, I am absolutely as much as orchestral music is my basis electronic music is is equally important and I'm, i've been fascinated with production it's from the very beginning um you know I've, I've found myself you know mixing some of my scores too so the actual the, the finished sonic product mm -hmm. for me is incredibly important and actually when you're using synths as as your orchestra you know as mm -hmm. your primary sound base it's really just about how, you know, in the same way as you would push an orchestra to perform and bring out the emotion and bring out, you do the same thing with the synth, but you, you are then, you know, the entire orchestra. And I mean, Zebra as a, as a synth, it's this incredible, um, you know, computer-based synth called by Yuhei. The depth and the power and the sheer immediacy of that instrument is staggering. And also the, the range of modulation possibilities, but what was interesting too is also what you do after the sound is created, and it was fascinating trying to reproduce Van Gerlis's kind of effects chain, where he had his huge lexicon reverbs, twenty-five second reverbs, and before that, you know, you'd have your even tied harmonizers to create that incredible stereo depth of field, and all those things are reproduced now by Universal Audio, um, very accurate, you know, plugin reproductions, and just kind of like analyzing the sound and, and sort of matching it. But then, because we're in the digital domain the possibilities are that much greater. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, an incredibly exciting thing. To how, how much do you <clears throat> channel the original score and then, like, where, where does the line get drawn where you want to do your own thing but you also pay homage? Because there's, you know, we're living in the, the era of reboots and sequels and, and callbacks to these films, and there's this comes up a lot. Well, I think... The Blade Runner score, the Vangelis score, is quite unique in some respects in that it, sonically, it's 
completely its own thing. It, it's mm. it's unlike any other score. And as such, it's hugely important to the overall world of Blade Runner. Mm. You know, it, it's really as part of the fabric as, you know, the, the rain, effectively, and the the all of the incredible tropes that are Blade Runner, only Blade Runner. And so as such, it was a case of embracing it as much as it is so fundamental to our basic language. But then the the big challenge was then how do we go how do we reinvent that for a completely different story and one which has is much more existential in many ways and and has you know asks so many difficult questions and and you know it's much more personal in so many ways you know Kay's journey through that film and the maze he's in and and there's a puzzle which gets ever more complex and so you know we started to introduce ideas of a puzzle theme these piano chords and then there was, you know, the horse motif, which is, you know, this the the visual symbol of of this wooden horse, which re- repeats at certain key moments in the story as the puzzle becomes more complex. That needed a theme. Uh, there's the Mesa theme, Hans's tune, which is just so kind of majestic and open. Um, and it, there's a kind of there was a sense that, you know, Vangelis it was present in the sonic choices, or at least that the sense of, you know. You have to pay respect to that, but mm-hmm. m- almost more important than is than that is the story, of course. And Denis' vision, you know, he has such an unbelievable scope, and he's such an inspiring director, and he really understands what, you know. I mean, what was extraordinary was how he balanced the sound design and the music, and he knew when he was briefing us exactly how the two would sit together. Um, so when we arrived at the dub stage, it was this kind of amazing, perfect interaction That's between it. the two things. Um, and yeah, so, so I don't know that, that whole process was for me, I, you know, when you finish a, a great book, you kind of, oh, I don't want to close this book. I, you know, I still to this day, I miss those, those days of, of, of Blade Runner. They were some of the most exciting and inspiring. <clears throat> I think it's fantastic also to hear the way that you're responding to the themes in a movie simply on an artistic level, I find it inspiring to be reminded time and time again how the composer, people think, oh, you're just slapping music on at the end of a movie. Right. Listen to how integral and how deep your understanding of existential themes are. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of bridge you have to cross, which is translating that to music. Right. It's such a tremendous job and so... So undervalued. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I really love hearing you say it and uh, just how involved you've gotten in the narrative. People think, oh, you know, the guy's running and jumping, so we're going to have some chase music. Well, why is he running and jumping? Exactly. And um, it's interesting because I, I listened last night to, I mean, there's a couple other scores of yours that are really becoming iconic, you know, the It scores, and we have It too. About to... When is that? We're recording that in two weeks. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Carol's crying. You have a big fan here. Carol is here today, sitting silently and... Our coordinator. And taking (laughs) notes. (laughs) Good vibes. So... That note, there's one... Of course, you know, there's like... I don't know if it's a modal concept that scale but boy there's a tritone or a minor second or something it's just like oh that's creepy (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting to me that it 
was a success back in the day. They brought it back, but now there's after a reboot, they're they're doing a sequel to a movie that already existed before, and there there wasn't an it two before, right? It's a it's a bit more complex in in some respect. I mean, it, there's a different approach. The miniseries was, um, I mean, the book keeps flashing between two two time frames. Okay. Um, and uh, that's what happened in the miniseries. But what we did in the movie was to take just one of them, uh, which is in the book is in the 50s, but we, we transposed that to the 80s. <laughs> and it's, um, it tells the story of the Losers Club and their first encounter with Pennywise. Um, but it, too, tells the rest of the story. So we only really told half of the book in, mm. in the first movie, and, and now we're, we're, we're completing the story, and it's, it's extraordinary to... Uh, were you surprised by the success of this movie? I mean, it exploded. I, you know, I, I, it's very hard. To, I don't know, really. I mean, I, for me, it's. I don't really think of movies whether you know there's a whether it's a hit or not. It's like, you know, it's it's the experience of creating this thing with with my collaborators, and then if if it goes on to be a huge hit, it's just this fantastic, exciting you know celebration of of the what we've done. But you know, even a movie that that isn't necessarily you know, going to go on to, to do things like that. It, it, it's not really on my radar, you know, but, but whether I was surprised, I mean, I guess because I, I hadn't really engaged with that world before I started working on it. You know, I, I was, when I was offered the job, I was like, okay, how am I going to read this 1200 page book in a couple of months? And I managed to basically get through it. And, and I realized just the following it had and, and the responsibility. Um, I mean, you know, like Blade Runner, it, there's a huge amount of, of expectation um, and but in a way you can completely freeze if you focus on that and mm. again it was just you know Andy Muschietti uh, who I'm working with every single day right now he's he's a, just the most incredible visionary filmmaker like Denis like David Sandberg I, I just feel so lucky to work with this these artists these geniuses who just have such the the, the way they they can see every department in this kind of bigger picture and, and know how music will be a part of that. It, it, it's, you know, it's so inspiring, but also just story. I mean, the it movie, it's not a horror flick, you know, it's, it's an adventure film with some incredibly terrifying things that happen, but it's, there's so much depth to the characters and you really care about their own journey as a, as a group and how the, the, the dynamics of that group and how that changes. And it's so relatable. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, Musically, it was, it was an incredible canvas to be in. It's wonderful that you get to work with these directors. Yeah. And it's also interesting when you say you, you're, it's about the work and not about the way the film performs. However, the world at large makes these very interesting judgments, I always found, about composers based on the box office mm -hmm. of, the, of the film. It has nothing to do with the quality of the score. You're blessed with having written great music to movies that were successful. But certainly I've had to deal with directors who come in and you mention a composer's resume and they say, oh, I hated that movie. And you say, well, well wait a minute. What does that have to do with the music? Right. The music was Some greater. of the best the music so is on go, bad nah, movies. I didn't. <laughs> that movie stank. I don't, I don't want to hire the guy because... So... You get to say, I mean, it's fun to even brag about it. Hey, Benjamin Walfish is coming in today, and he did, and you name these movies. You go, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Probably not able to sing one cue or know one bit of what the music was, but they just know those movies were cool. I mean, 
I think when we come back after a moment of uh, catching our breath, we can talk a little bit about how you got to this spot and how you actually got to a spot where didn't Hellboy and Shazam come out within a minute of like each other? Like six days. And so <laughs> you must have learned somewhere along the line not only the music but how to have grace under pressure. Yeah, a lot of late nights. <laughs> so no question. We'll, we'll, when we come uh, back, we'll get to that and much more you. with Benjamin Wallfish. Stick around. Thank you. Hey, SCORE fans, it's Robert Kraft. We're back to the show in 25 seconds. If you like what you're hearing, do us a quick favor. Rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. It just takes a second, and it helps the show grow. Hey, thanks. We're going back to the show right now. Welcome back. We're here with Benjamin Wallfish. That is the Hidden Figures score, which is one of my... I was just telling our team, one of my favorite scores of probably the last 15, 20 years. It's Thank you. so beautiful and inspiring. And, oh, I just... I could listen. This is like the best working music to put on. Um, it's interesting that uh, this is another collaboration with you and Hans. Right. But if you put them side by side, you're like, wait, those that's the same duo? And Pharrell. And Pharrell. Um, I read that Pharrell was initially the composer or the song. He was going to do songs for the film, and then you guys came on after. Can you talk about how you guys all kind of came together? Yeah, I, I think Pharrell uh, is a producer on the movie. He and yeah. he, he With wrote, Donna. Right. And he wrote these incredible songs um, for the film. And it just was this thing, you know, he and Hans go back a long way. And, uh, you know, they're, they're very, very close. And... Uh, and Hans was brought in, and then and then Hans just called me, and said, "Hey, do you want to be a part of this band?" And I was like, "Of course!" <laughs> I'd just come off uh, a cure for wellness, so mm. it was good to have some, you know, uplifting, you know, get out of the crazy psychological drama that that was as, th as thrilling as it was to work on. And so, yeah, it was this. Amazing... I like how he called it a band. Well, that that is really important to to Hans's way of working, and and I've since adopted that myself. It, this idea that. You know, in a band, you bounce off each other and any any crazy idea is allowed. And even if it's really like, what are you talking about? Okay, let's try it. And you just never know. And and that kind of sense of just uh, abandoning the rules and, and being completely reckless with your reaching for, for ideas. Sometimes you, you come up with something so much more interesting. Uh, and then you sometimes, okay, actually, you know, that doesn't work. But then that might lead you down another path. And, you know, those collaborations are the, that kind of atmosphere is sometimes, what it, if, it, if it works for the filmmaker, it's quite fun to do, which is why, you know, in my writing rig, it's designed so that if a director has a note, it's very easy to immediately address it with, you know, doing it on the fly. Um, anyway, it's, um, mm. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, um, it, with hidden figures, um, of course, this is a story which, we all felt this huge it was such an honor to be able to tell it frankly yeah. it's such an important part of history i mean mm -hmm. the moon the moon landing the first moon landings would be impossible without these women hmm. and these african-american women who were working under jim crow uh these genius mathematicians who were completely uncelebrated until very recently unacknowledged um, yeah and <sighs> This the the movie has such warmth and such incredible authentic, authenticity, um, and the music, of course, 
was a had to be a big part of that and so pharrell kind of kept us honest in that in that respect in 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 the way that he he was the one who said no we've got to bring in kirk franklin to have gospel choir i was wondering how the gospel um, choir showed up and, and it was just these kind of these these Do little you want a revolution why, why don't we try this <laughs> Love <Kirk. laughs> yeah and uh and that was our starting point because you know for me i've always loved gospel music not only for the performance but for the harmonies the warmth and the depth of those chords and that's it's so unique and and i don't know there's no way that you can't smile when you hear gospel music and for me that's an emotion i celebrate in music is just the, the sense of benevolence and warmth so the the starting point was just these opening chords you hear on the piano in f and f major is just one of those bright friendly keys you know it's a flat key it, yeah it's weird but it's for me it's like you know the e the e major is so strange the F major. I don't know. It's a, it's a love that. I'd love to go through every. There's key an in openness. Here. It's like okay. It's a new day. So yes. it's it's brighter. But there was this kind of um, I don't know. The, the the piano became important. I mean, one of the things that we we started discussing was so many movies about mathematicians have this kind of minimalist. Steve Reich, Philip Glass kind of thing, which mm-hmm. is really effective because it communicates complexity and machines and you know it's and I love that music. But for this, it was like you know these these incredible women you know they dance about math and there there needed to be a kind of a sense of oh, I'm not going to say swing because there isn't swing in the movie but it's a freedom and, and a celebration mm. so it's it's an enjoyable thing it's not just like you're a human computer which they were uh it's this sense of what if we try this and and the fact that they were revolutionaries um and so the the, the music sort of had to kind of capture that Movement, you know, the sense of that it needed it needed to be kinetic, which is why that that the main theme is that that piano motif. That da, 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 da. It's it to this day. I'm not quite sure what the time signature is. I just know that that's what it had to be. It had to be asymmetrical because it keeps it. There's it keeps you on your toes. You know, um, that's that's <laughs> such a great explanation. It, I don't know why it had to be, but it, that's what it was. It just it just was. Yeah, and I love that you didn't go down the obvious path of sequential kind of you know sterile mathematical sounds and music because of course they're dealing with numbers and here's a whole right. sequenced kind of eighth note thing that's layers upon itself yeah but you went with the warmth of the characters well again this is the great thing about you know when you get those chances i mean i feel like um you know i've been mentored by hands over all these years uh, and one of the things he said is you know don't do that because it's like will be like every other score about math and of course, you know, you sort of find yourself fearing. So, no, 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 go away from that. You got to keep. You got to keep true. And that sense of when you've made a decision about a concept, kind of ruthlessly sticking to it. If if it if it's working, if it's sticking, and and it feels like it's actually becoming part of the fabric of the movie, then you you sort of have to protect it almost as a concept. And 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 you know, then you kind of get to a place where you discover new things that you may not have done if you're trying to do too many, you know, trying to be too tricksy. There's a sort of purity to, to, you know, if you have that, the idea, the theme, there'll be all these sort of child themes that come from that, and it, it, it will be more integrated somehow. It's, I like that you said theme. That's the word I always used until I started working with Hans. And Hans and John Powell and Harry use another synonym. And I never understood it because it sounded too simplistic, but I now understand. They'd say, I have to find the tune. Right. And so I think the tune, that's so silly. That's just kind of a little tuned. Aren't you looking for the big thematic chunk of the movie? But 
John Powell once said, we had a conversation about the tune, which is exactly that, which can be minor and then it can be comic and maybe it's in three and maybe it's in four and maybe it's orchestrated one way and maybe it's just frivolous in another way. But once you find the tune, you're a little home free. Yeah, I mean, I guess it must also be like casting your your main actor. Oh, perfect! You know, it's great like analogy. Once you have everything that actor will bring, somehow things can fall into place. Um, it informs you also about the character mm. if the actor is cast well. Mm. It can also change in some ways the feeling about the movie. True. The right actor. Yeah, absolutely right. And and what I've discovered is you know, I come from this classical background where. My inclination was always towards the orchestra and towards long melodies. And actually, over the last five or six years of working on so many different genres and having to just completely start with a blank slate each time and, and have that, that terrifying experience of basically saying to yourself, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just have no idea. And, and going and then reading a script and then suddenly you have all these ideas and you have your first conversations and then you know, you, you're faced with one M one and and a blank Cubase screen and a piano sketch and, and then you just somehow start and, and there is this wonderful kind of thing where complexity can be your enemy and actually what is the simplest possible thing for this movie? And often it could be literally a sound. You know, that you, you you know for example, Cure for Wellness, there was a huge process I went through with Gore Verbinski. It was one of the most inspiring and important periods of my life actually was that movie because Gore invited me to be in his cutting rooms for nearly a year, um, working with him every single day. So he didn't want to use any temp at all. And mm. so the whole thing was, you know, I basically created the temp as sweets before he'd even started cutting the film. And he used that as the temp and then I modified. So it was this constant back and forth and that opportunity to be next to a master filmmaker and see every single tiny iteration of this movie and, and why and how and these the big decisions where whole scenes were cut and then things were turned upside down and story was adapted I, I learned more that, that I mean what was funny is it was you know it was Hans who put me in that position to go and work with Gore I met Gore and we figured it out and he was like okay let's let's try this and I came back and Hans said I just sent you to film school and, uh, <laughs> and it literally it was that because I remember before that experience with Gore um, I was thinking mostly about music composer stuff after that i started thinking only as a filmmaker using music as the means and but i, I didn't feel like i almost had the right before because i didn't really have the chance to understand not just on paper and in theory but actually see for a year how a movie at that level is constructed with all of the just the the, the detail of the process mm. and um and also gore is an amazing musician uh, wow. you know, he, he's someone who, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a punk rocker. You know, he, he plays the guitar. He, he loves music and he, he, he has a way of describing music, which is not specific about, you know, he won't tell you which chord to use, but he'll be able to give you certain inspirational colors. And, uh, there's not know. a lot of filmmakers that speak that language. You know, it's so interesting because you have to kind of be open to any language that's thrown at you, whether it's, I, I mean, the one language which I, I, I I strive to get to with a filmmaker is is narrative and story. Mm. Kind of everything else doesn't matter, as long as you, you can really understand what it is they're trying to do on that level. Um, and that, you know, what's most enjoyable is when when a filmmaker just gives you the free reign and and doesn't isn't too specific about the 
the musical choices. But then sometimes they are. And, and you know, actually working with Andy right now, he, he's also, I mean, I get very lucky with filmmakers who are great musicians. He, he's an awesome musician. And there's, I can talk to him about certain harmonic choices and, and orchestration. He'll be like, no, the horns sound heroic. Put that on the cellos. So, and I was like, I think wow. we should have Sulpont cellos. Yes, Sulpont cellos. You know, so sometimes you can have those very in-depth conversations, but that's not at all needed. You know, it can just simply be like, that sounds too heroic. And that's the end. And they go, okay, my head is probably the horns. That's probably, you know, <laughs> so it's, it, it, it really depends. Um, but, uh, I, I've actually, it's interesting. I've seen both. I've seen Ridley Scott kind of nod to Harry mm. and say, that works. Mm. And, you know, Harry's looking for more feedback than that. Mm. And it's just, I like where you're going and I'm, you're, you've been hired to do this. You're doing it. I sat with Ang Lee and Michael Dana and Ang was very, granular and I even said to him at one point this is so specific he said it's as important to me as the lighting the costumes some directors are deeply involved and Ang is brilliant with music mm. and do you have a preference I, I don't I mean I, I think it's it's just for me genuinely it feels like an honor to be in the room with someone at that level uh, but also I have to be their partner and their brother in arms because music has an inordinate influence on a movie. Um, and we wield this incredibly powerful medium which can completely change how a movie feels you know, from scene to scene or, or overall. And I, I don't really have a, a specific preference other than, you know, it's, it's just as long as we, you know, underst- as long as I can understand uh, and, and I'll, do whatever I can to strive to get to that point where it's, I really understand why there are certain choices That's being brilliant. made. And, and, and so then I can interpret that in my own way musically and don't really have to ask too many sure. questions. Um, but it, it really, you know, a lot of it comes down to how much time there is. You know, if you have the luxury of a year, then you can be, you know, obviously much more granular. Um, I mean, working with David Sandberg, we've done three movies together and the first two were horror movies and then we did Shazam. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even on three movies, we have such a shorthand. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I value that relationship so much because I know when I'm doing a David movie, there'll be just this kind of month of writing where I'll come up with, you know, 45 minutes, an hour of music, and he'll sit down for three or four hours, listen to all of it, give me a few notes, and then that's that. And that's because, you know, that's we build up that trust. Um, and then some, some directors will want to get in there, have weekly playbacks and analyze every moment, and for me, it's like, okay, that's their process. Beautiful. I mean, I mean p- a part of it is also, you know, and again, I think this was something I've, I've come to realize over the last few years is that we as composers are effectively another department. I mean, it's the experience we give a director needs to be akin to the experience they have with an editor or a color correction or a VFX. So they're, they're in the room with, with the head of department. And your job is to, in your world further their vision and so i always think of music as something that directors should be able to touch as much as they can make an editorial change themselves or or a color change or a vfx change whatever it is adr line and that's where technology helps us and the ability to call on uh i mean I, i use cubase which has a fantastic uh visibility function where i mean we have this ridiculous template which i've built up over five years is about 6,000 MIDI tracks. It's completely stupid, frankly. (laughs) 
Uh, but I'm sort of, I hate the idea of having an idea and then having to wait. Um, so we have these, they're called visibility agents, where I, I have on, a, on my iPad set, if I, if I want to be doing a Shazam, I had a Shazam button, press the Shazam button and it's just orchestral. But then if it's a, you know, there was a Blade Runner button and it's just synths and then there's all kinds of other combinations for action cues, then these certain tracks come up. But that also means in a the, in the playback meeting, I can have everything open at the same time and listening to, you know, trying to get inside a, dir- and a director's note um, and it can just be a color, you know, like we just, this needs to be colder and the ability mm. to then, you know, mute the cellos, add a little bit of, you know, glass harmonica and some like a quiet cymbal roll and put that through a bigger reverb. You can do all that in a couple of minutes in the same way as an editor can take another, you know, another version of that scene or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to me to be able to, you know, be doing this today where we have that technology to where the director feels like they can touch the music as much I as they can. I think you just described also the composer's role in a way I've never heard it described, which is that analogy is classic. It's the head of the department, the way that the VFX or the lighting yeah. or the editorial that you are realizing the vision of, it's a very production oriented Con- concept and I think a lot of young composers think I'm an artist I'm bringing in my art I have to express myself and then they find out no it, actually you're painting someone else's house I mean I don't know if there is a sort of delineation like a clear A and B I think it's both it is both because t- to really do the job you have to have a sensibility and, and make artistic choices and, of course. And, 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 and frankly and express your artistic well, well, it's it's interesting because it isn't mine; it's the movies, huh, and it's, it's the idea of yep. what can I bring. And I don't really know the answer to this, honestly. And it's very hard for me to verbalize it, even when I'm working on a movie. It's just a feeling that this film gives me, and and I'm going to try and put that feeling into music. And that that's kind that's of it. that's where it starts. And I don't know what that is; it just happens to be this thing. So, in the case of it, for some reason, this very sort of strange piano piece came out i don't know why it was just like okay this was uh this is what this movie kind of came from and then of course the pennywise theme needed to be this kind of weird spidery thing that crawls in on itself but then you know and then you gotta go really extreme which is andy's idea oranges and lemons uh you know for the kind of the malevolent uh inner workings of pennywise's mind but all those things are they're just they're instinctive and and i and i guess some people would say that's where the artist part of it comes in i don't think of it like I'm an artist. I feel like music is this art form which we we serve and we are conduits of. And, you know, it's almost like you're curating this incredible potential of music and the unbelievable breadth of possibility and cho- making the right choices that fit the movie's sensibilities. That's lovely. I wanted to ask about Shazam. We touched on it a little bit and you you kind of – touched on that you were channeling a little john williams in that score it's very big orchestra superhero but the movie is it's one of these kind of self-deprecating kind of making fun of the superhero idea and the music could have been silly and goofy what what was the reason to go so heroic and so big with that in a movie that was kind of poking fun at itself the whole time i mean 
first thing is it's impossible to channel John Williams because he is in, he is his own universe, and <laughs> I, you know I am in awe of his music. I always have been, still am. In a the, galaxy far away. Well, it's it's incredible to be alive when there is a new John Williams score coming out this year. For me, that's just like I celebrate that. You know, it's just such a yep. and and I think what he's done to film music, you know, over his career is elevate it to something to just a whole other level both in pop culture but just also in terms of music i mean the mm. actual the stuff itself is so astonishing <laughs> the writing it i mean sometimes i listen to pretty much any cube especially some stuff from the 80s or 90s and you go what how did you do that <laughs> you know? so just on a, on a craft level it's just utterly inspiring and and so that's the first thing to clarify there's no way you can channel it that's just you know you can't touch it but as a, as a fan, as someone who loves that music, I remember the feeling I got as a kid mm. and the, the sense of awe. And again, it's that thing of you know channeling my own feeling. It's like, how do I put that sense of awe into music? And the idea is that, I wouldn't say it's poking fun at itself. It's kind of celebrating the idea of uh, a superhero movie as, a, as an incredibly um, lighthearted and fun experience. You're getting away from heavy, the heaviness that's happened in the last couple of decades nothing wrong with that unbelievable movies dark knight you know incredible trilogy um but there's a there was something about you know he's a classic superhero you know he's from the golden age you know he's created in the 30s he's one of the very first around the time of superman's creation um and there's there was just david really wanted to capture that sense it's a classic golden age superhero and and really it was just a case of then okay let's let's really go into this you know also, like Back to the Future, it, it, nice. that that movie. I mean, that score is so interesting because it of a lot of movies. If you turn off the score, it looks so much smaller. <laughs> yeah, You're, it's, the music it's, definitely made Shazam feel huge. Well, it, it would have been huge without the score for sure. But but I think what was fun was you know David and I were just geeking out really from from day one. I mean, we had dinner um, and just that was the first thing he said is like, what if we what if we did a sort of classic orchestral and it's terrifying i mean that that brief is okay that is going to be really hard and i hmm. luckily i had about a year to 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 really start thinking about it and um, i spent probably two or three months just trying to figure out a tune a superhero tune and I, I don't know 20 were thrown out and then i realized okay what's missing there are two tunes that i needed there's the shazam hero theme and then there's the transformation theme the idea of a kid who's given superpowers, what does that feel like? This idea that this is so cool. You know, this like, so it's imagine like, imagine you're a 12 year old and you're given a 100 piece orchestra and, and like you can do whatever you want. It was that sense of just fun. Um, and it, I was channeling my own inner kid. Like I remember conducting some of those score, scoring sessions and just thinking, this is literally what I dreamed of when I was 10. Was Lindhurst always your destination for this score? Or, and is that the room that you love? You know, I absolutely what? love Air, uh, Lindhurst. It's a gorgeous room. I love Abbey Road 1. I love Sony, uh, Eastwood. I mean, it's it's such a joy to, to be able to record in these yeah. spaces. I mean, Sony especially is the history there, but also Abbey Road 1. I mean, the fact that Elgar recorded there is yeah. insane. Um there, I don't know. For me, the studio is like my natural habitat. Yes. I feel most excited whenever I'm. It's probably why I'm building one because uh, it's just this sense of possibility and and being in the room with those musicians. Honestly, that's that's the icing on the cake. That's the, you know all those months of in a darkened room of eighteen hour days and 
you know you know that at the end of it you get to work with musicians who will bring it to life and, and it makes it makes it all Robert teased this a little bit before we went to the break, but um, you had two films come out within a week of each other. Right. Um, w- were you working on those simultaneously? No. Okay. No, Hellboy, um, actually very surprised they offered it to me because I had to. I said I have a hard out, which was August uh, last year because I was like, I'm doing Shazam from there. And they, they very kindly agreed to put mm. in my contract that I would finish on this day. And I did. And it was before any of the VFX great was score. done. Thank you. It really rocks, too. It, it was, yeah, I mean, it's such an intense movie. And I, I love David Harbour's performance because there's so much irreverence. Um, and again, it was a good chance to, you know, channel one of my other loves, which is EDM and, and yeah. try, trying to find a place for that in a, in a narrative film score and punk and, you know, using an orchestra that was primarily lower instruments. Um, but yeah, I was, I was lucky that they, they agreed to the, the timing because I just disappeared on and August 31st. There, there you were with two big pictures in the marketplace. It was, it was and everybody crazy. thought, wow, did he write these at the same time? He'd <laughs> be completely screwed if you'd attempt that. I <laughs> thought you were going to say, um, we teased it before. You mentioned before we started recording that um, you came to the U.S. for a meeting on the Fox lot 11 years ago. That's right. It was this gentleman. Oh, it's you. <laughs> Sorry. Terrible joke. I remember that meeting vividly. I was so nervous, but it was my first ever meeting with a Hollywood executive and it was with you. Oh, and, God, and you I were, hope, inc- I hope I didn't disappoint. <laughs> you have no you choice astonished. here to say it was fabulous. Well, it, it was genuinely, I just thought, how, how am I even taking up your time? Because at that point I only had, two credits i think and i was mostly orchestrating for my dear friend dario i know i had heard something that made me call the person that said i'd like you to meet benjamin that made me think yeah okay well whatever i heard and i don't remember what it was one of those two credits clearly piqued my interest i mean it was just a thrill because uh, i just moved to la um and my decision to move here was really obviously you know the possibility professionally mm-hmm. but also i just loved the place i love the people i was very lucky to come here on a job uh the soloist with dario was conducting mm. and during those sessions i met so many now very dear and old friends um some people who i studied with back in the uk you know now playing the orchestras and there was this kind of wonderful uh Community. I mean, I th- the film music community here is, is amazing, and yeah. it's rich and supportive and fascinating people. And everyone loves this craft that we are mm-hmm. all beavering away at, trying to you know improve and, and change. And, and, and so I felt that, and I, you don't really feel that in London. London's amazing because it's just you know it's like New York. There's just this explosion of meat culture, but LA, it's very focused on this thing Mm -hmm. which which as a kid i was always the most fascinated with so yeah so i made that decision to move which of course isn't that easy got to get a visa and all the rest of it but i managed to make it happen and and then um yeah do you want to go meet the president of fox music okay sure (laughs) but it was uh it was one of those i just what i remember about the meeting was firstly it was so hot and you you had a room which was very comfortable very cool and and there was this kind of like walking into the room was into this like sanctuary of interesting you had lots of really interesting things in the room and uh and we had uh, i mean i don't know maybe this is just I, me imagining no, what it. happened You're at the sanctuary <laughs> um 
I had a wonderful office <laughs> yeah. at Fox. It was pretty and cool. And I also kept everything, all the swag, all the little that's right. tchotchkes, all the things that I'd been given, I put up on those shelves. Yeah, that's And I so there that. always was toys and photographs yeah. and souvenirs. It was quite distracting because I was like, how am I, you know, going to get this guy to hire me, you know, as a little kid with no credits, you know. And, of course, the only way is to just completely ignore all of that. And I just really wanted to talk about what was in the room. <laughs> but, it, but it was, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's funny because in London, that doesn't really happen. You don't just go and meet. It's normally about something specific. So hmm. I was really, yeah, I was taken by the generosity. Well, I remember one other aspect, which is actually a good, I don't want to forget before we close up to ask. I remember one of the other aspects of what I was told about you that interested me, which is that you came from a significant musical family. And that appealed to me, that you had, you had it in you. It wasn't just, oh, here's the next student from a music school who just wants to be a composer. This is somebody who's genetically and ancestrally related to music. And that, I thought, let's meet this guy that sounds like yeah, can a, you tell a little a bit about start. your background yes please i mean my family is just this incredibly i mean we, we come from music is like part, part of our culture I, I, I know i mean it's my grandfather was a concert pianist and my grandmother anita who's still alive excuse me um she's a holocaust survivor and she played the i mean the reason she's alive was because she played the cello in the women's orchestra at auschwitz and sort of having that history in your family where music plays that much of an important role, it, 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 there is a through line. Uh, my, my siblings are both musicians. My parents are both string players. Uh, who, and, and my dad especially, I think, has had the biggest influence on me in terms of work ethic. You know, he's someone who, to this day, practices the cello six hours a day. And you know, I remember as a kid going in when he, he was practicing the Shostakovich cello concerto for the 10,000th time, going, don't you know that yet? You know, it's like, how many times? <laughs> but that, that sort of sense, that, no, 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 there's still something to learn, something to discover. And the, the, the love, I mean, he's never lost his love of, of the process of you know, mm. getting to a point where he can perform something involves this amount of time of, of work and prep. So there's a, I don't know, music for me, I mean, what, what was, I guess, a bit uncomfortable internally was, you know, I went down the classical path for a long time as a conductor um, but it was that kind of internal struggle of what I really loved and was most fascinated with is film music and there's uh, I remember it was almost like you know going to my parents saying I'm going to stop conducting now and I was like, like is that okay with you and they were like of course you do, do, oh, do what great. do you that's great but it's that because that, when you have those number of generations of classical musicians there's that kind of almost sense that you, you know you need to keep the family business going in a way I was going to ask was um, there a lot of pressure on you to deliver I mean when your whole family does this I think you put a lot of pressure on yourself I mean especially I'm the I'm the yeah. eldest sibling of three hmm. and I, I don't know there must be something in that I, I've always put a huge amount of pressure on myself to to really try and realize my, you know, whatever it is that's inside. And, and honestly, there's, you know, the, the, just the sheer focus on, on the work and never letting the pressure off, um, the, you know, pursuing every day, just something a little bit better than the day before. Again, being inspired by my dad and my grandpa, who was a, the same thing. He practiced every day, Schubert, Brahms, Beethoven, and he would spend three hours on one, run and just so that he got the right tone you know just little things like that oh. it's there's a kind of that influences you and i just feel so lucky 
that for whatever reason, I, you know, I can write music and music is the culture and language of my family. So I feel, you know, just honored in a way that, that I get to do that every day and also do it in such a way that it, it never gets boring because I'm collaborating and, you know, bringing music to something much bigger than, than music. I always like to ask, what, what do you listen to? Like if you turned on your iPod, what, what did you drive over here listening to? <laughs> I'm really weird in that I rarely listen to music for, for, for pleasure. I mean, it's a terrible thing to admit, but, you know, every day. You like the yeah. silence. Well, it really, because I get ideas. Actually, I get some of my most, my best, if I'm going to call them my best. I, there's, for me, I hate saying my best because often, anyway, I'm not going to leave the insecurity. But the point is, the ideas which tend to survive often happen when I'm, in, when I'm driving, really weirdly. And I always have my little voice recorder ready to go just in case. Maybe that's oh. why you like L.A. because you're drive, <laughs> sitting in the car all the there's time. There's a lot of that. There is. But it's, yeah, it's, I mean, when I do listen, it, it's for, often for a very specific reason. And, and, of course, I mean, I love, really love listening to jazz, but not like, I mean, like really experimental where, where you can hear a musician just kind of going off on one at three in the morning in a you know half drunken stupor sometimes in new york in the 60s whatever it was but they come up with these chords and it's like what and he they don't even know yeah. necessarily what Free. it is it's that freedom of approach and a lot you know whenever i'm writing the very first thing i do is i'll sit down on the piano and just improvise and that's that's and it's chords it actually starts with harmony always it's rare that it starts with a melody and finding interesting intervallic relationships between notes that you know and the keyboard too i think of music very much in terms of 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 the keyboard rather than as dots um and mm -hmm. and it's it's a it's like a friend you know that the piano there's always a piano in the house when i was growing up and just going to sit down and play annoying all my piano teachers because i'd never practiced what it was they i love hearing this but you're, it's, you're playing jazz for him well definitely not as ripping. good as jazz but but just something just inventing and it's you know i, I remember as a young kid, it was the Moonlight Sonata. And there are two chords in the Moonlight Sonata because you're in C-sharp minor. Mm -hmm. And he goes to A major, then D major in the first inversion. So you've got F-sharp up. And then it was the progression of that D major to A-flat 7, which is this tritone relationship, right? But he does it with this voicing where he just changes in this gorgeously elegant way. And I just remember as a kid, I had no idea what that was. I just remember learning it, and, and every time I did those two chords, my, something happened inside. I just felt something, and, and, and I, so what would happen is I'd just, okay, what happens if you do this? And then what happens if you transpose it? And you, I'd spend two or three hours just, like, discovering something, and then, of course, you learn, okay, it's because of the tritone relationship, and it's, it's a Neapolitan case, all these words, this theory. And then, but the, the, what's really fascinating is that as a kid, sometimes you can, you don't need to know any of that technical stuff. You just, you respond to your own emotional, like chords and harmonies. They do things to you. Um, I love that. Well, the, and that's, I think that's what's important about <laughs> film music is you don't have to be a classically trained musician to feel emotion from the ch chord change of, you know, certain keys or whatever. Like th that's, that's what's important about music is, is humans can understand the music without really knowing what but it's doing. But you definitely need a composer yes. that understands it. Um, and I think it's just the world is starting to enjoy you know, everything that you discovered. It's just great that you're sharing it. And I love the way you talk about it. When you talk about the piano as a friend, it just, it just kind of warms me because I know that feeling, mm. particularly when you're little. Right, and there's something in the room that you can go to, even when you're sad mm -hmm. or when you want to just express something. 
having that relationship to a piano can, and in your case, did blossom into, oh, by the way, you're in Hollywood. You're making movie music now. That relationship all paid off. And I think it's just, it's just fabulous. Benjamin, it's so great to have you here. I'm so, I'm so happy to be able to hear what's happened over the last 11 years. Thank you. That was a lucky meeting, and I, I clearly missed the possibility of hiring you. Right. No, then. no, it's a really good job you didn't. It would have been not, wouldn't it? I, can't I remember. I, need, I, I mean, it's good that you said it was sort of a general because yeah. I. I cannot remember if it was on a specific film or the person introduced us said, you should just know this person. And I've had those kind of meetings occasionally where they just evaporate. And then once in a while, somebody comes to me and says, what you just did, which is here you are 11 years later and you're crushing it. Hey, oh, thank you. Oh, it's great. No, I mean – what Thank can I, you. What can I say? It's 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 so great to talk to you guys, and uh, yeah, I have hugely fond memories of that meeting. Uh, yeah, it's it stood out. I feel like our mics are picking up a radio signal. I, I think. It, Do I hear Jordan it, Bieber or something? It might be Jordan Bieber. <laughs> is it is it the it two score is being channeled through, or is it just kind of a Wi Fi freakout? The good news is we've got two words for you, Jordan Bieber. Thank you so much. <laughs> the Really great news is we've gotten to spend an hour with Benjamin Walfish. Yeah, Ben, thank you so much. And Thanks we're really me. looking forward to it, too. Is there anything else you're working on that you can say? Um, or are you just working on maybe a vacation I'm after just, that? I I'm just know. thinking, actually, no, I can't talk about it. I know what you're them. working on that you can't but, uh, say. You're working on a studio. Well, there is that, yes. That, I mean, that is probably the biggest project. The scoring lab. Yeah, that's going to be. scoring uh, lab. But, well, um, again, we, we were trying to make this work, and we really appreciate during the construction and all the work you've been – the amazing work you've been doing uh, for coming on the show. Next time Thank we'll you. do this in the Scoring yes. Lab. Great That's stuff. right. Uh, reminder to our listeners to follow us on Twitter, at Score the Podcast, and please rate and review the show. Give us a five-star 